Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret welcome Dr. Eric Topol, renowned pioneer in personalized medicine, once dubbed the most influential physician leader in America by modern healthcare. Dr. Topol has been using his team at the Scripps Translational Institute to analyze and drill down on all the data emerging around the pandemic. He talks about concerns around the Omicron variant, how booster data is showing this to be a three-dose vaccine, and what holiday travel plans should look like as the Delta cases continue to rise. Laurie Robertson checks in. Managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Eric Topol here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, renowned for his work in advancing digital health and personalized medicine. He previously led the Cleveland Clinic to the number one ranking for cardiac care. Dr. Topol continues to lend significant support to the National Institute of Health's All of Us Precision Medicine Program, a program of great national significance. He's the author of more than 1,200 papers, several books, including The Patient Will See You Now. And he was once ranked by Modern Healthcare as the most influential physician executive in the United States. Dr. Topol, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare today. Thanks very much, Margaret and Mark. Good to be with you again. And Dr. Topol, Omicron is dominating the pandemic news right now, and there's a, lots of unknowns. But last week, you said there were lots of reasons for optimism that this is not some horrible situation that we're in. We know the data will drive our perceptions, but what do you say now? Well, it's not the doomsday variant, fortunately. I mean, we do know that there have been many people who've been vaccinated, exposed, infected with Omicron, and they're holding up well. We don't know of any yet, actually, who've been very ill. Uh, That's good. But the fact that it's getting into people who been vaccinated, even with a booster third shot, uh, is, of course, disconcerting. I think the main uh, property of Omicron that is disturbing and and, and very concerning is that it has marked immune evasion, that it it works around our uh, recognition from the prior virus versions and from our vaccine immunity to some degree, okay? And so that gives it uh, an enhanced ability to spread Uh, And that's what we're seeing, of course. Now we're seeing it with many super spreader events in Norway, in the UK, and a lot more to come. So it may well be on its way to becoming the dominant uh, strain, taking over, displacing Delta. We'll have to see over time. But, you know, there's good and bad here. We we have a new, very challenging uh, variant that's mutation-laden like we've not seen before. On the other hand, the vaccines we have for the most part, are holding up reasonably well, and that's a good sign. Well, you know, it's interesting. Even in states with with fairly robust vaccination rates, we're seeing increases in hospitalization, increases uh, in deaths associated with the Delta variant. And yet, you know, the reports of Omicron seem to have spurred some more uh, impetus on people's part to go get vaccinated in the first place. Do you think people are beginning to see that this is just 
something we're in for the long haul uh, and maybe some of the resistors are moving a little bit more towards accepting a vaccine? I hope so. We are dreadfully low in our vaccination rate, ranking somewhere around 50th in the world as far as countries. Our 60% of the total population vaccinated is not going to get us very far. We've seen the likes of countries like Czech Republic and Hungary, which are at the same levels that are in desperate shape right now. We've left ourselves terribly vulnerable. Also, because of the waning, we need to get our boosters up much higher than they are. We're, we're lagging in there to many other countries. So we have a lot of work to do. And maybe the good part of Omicron, if there's any other good part, would be to help us get our immunity wall built more. Number one, getting more vaccinations. And number two, getting those who have been vaccinated to maintain their full uh, effectiveness. And we're still waiting on Omicron data to come in over the next couple of weeks to really sort of solidify scientists' view of this. Is this a good time for uh, Americans to be traveling internationally? And I'm thinking about the holidays that are coming up. How should people deal with this and what safeguards might they take? I'm wondering, would you, would you travel internationally uh, right now or would you uh, uh, wait this out until we get more information? I wouldn't want to be on any long flights right now. You know, we don't really have the systems in place to get maximized safety. Let me just expound a little bit. First of all, Delta is out of control here. We have about 100,000 cases a day and we're on the way up, back up, the second Delta surge in the U.S. So in this country, we have a lot of circulating Delta virus, which is, as you well know, hyper transmissible. It's really been a formidable foe. You add to that, we don't have a rapid testing program such that if you go on a plane, and even if you knew everyone was fully vaccinated, which should be three shots if you're out by six months, you don't know at that moment in time whether they're a carrier. That is, they're gonna have symptoms later in the flight or in the next day. So we don't, if we had those things, that is the, the rapid testing that was done at the airport, the results were done in five minutes systematically, and we you know, had everybody who got on a plane that was vaccinated and masked and all those things. Yeah, we could do it safely, but we just don't have those systems in place. We know what to do. We just don't do it repeatedly. Well, I'm hoping that we're beginning to, as a country, move closer to that widespread availability of rapid testing. And certainly in the community health center world, that seems to be happening. Put it in the medicine chest of people at home to test um, but I, I wanted to ask you about a tweet that you posted in August that certainly caught my attention. And I think I'm quoting this accurately when you say there needs to be some truth telling about the reduced effectiveness of the messenger RNA vaccines versus symptomatic Delta infections. What were you meaning? What was your message there? Well, it caught a lot of people off guard. and I got a lot of backlash about it. But frankly, it was a denial, case of denial. So by August, we already had clear signs that the mRNA vaccines, particularly Pfizer, uh, but also some data with Moderna, were losing their efficacy by four to six months. And that was against not just infections, but symptomatic infections, which is a bad sign, which you know is going to turn out in people who have uh, increased risk, like over age 60, as it turned out to be over age 40 to have more hospitalizations and deaths. You knew it was gonna happen, but there was denial because of two reasons. Number one, there was the issue that, oh, we're trying to get our vaccines uh, up, vaccinations up, so keep quiet because this is gonna undermine 
the success of the campaign. Well, that's really stupid because you can do both. Get the truth out saying, you know what, you, get, you need to get vaccinated and you're probably going to need another shot um, once you get beyond six months. Just tell the truth from the get-go so you don't have to make stuff up later and look like you didn't tell the truth. The second thing is about global equity. We all want the entire species, you know, near 8 billion people to get vaccinated, but we don't have enough vaccines in the low and middle income countries yet, like we should, particularly the continent of Africa. That doesn't mean we shouldn't press on and get that up to scale. We need to do both, but don't let the people who are protected become unprotected. That's not gonna help anyone. And that's not going to help get control of the of the pandemic in the United States, where we've underutilized vaccines grossly. So um, I laid it out there. Turned out it was true. The signal was obvious. And it took months for some of these public health experts to now using Omicron as the excuse for why they are now recommending boosters for all adults. But sorry, the data was unequivocal. Yeah. And we had a randomized trial, by the way, of over 10,000 people who got the Pfizer vaccine with two shots and got a placebo versus two shots and um, a booster. And it showed very substantial restoration of efficacy, over 95%. That's fantastic. But that could have been predicted back in August. And by the way, that's why President Biden made an announcement in August. Okay, all adults are going to be able to get a booster shot and should get a booster shot. Then he had to walk it back because all the infighting at the CDC and FDA, with the rogue scientists at the FDA. And, you know, this is crazy stuff. We should all be looking at the data and we have a single voice, consistent voice. And we haven't had that in this country. We've got divisiveness even within our leadership. Well, you're so right. The data should be driving our policy. And we look forward to more transparency on the data that's uh, out there. And it's great for you sharing that randomized clinical trial, those are really the acid tests for so much. You know, I want to focus a little bit about the mRNA platform. Uh, The vaccine technology uh, is being evaluated as a way to treat cancer, autoimmune diseases, and other conditions. I'm wondering if you're doing any research on this, and how do you see the mRNA technology advancing healthcare? it, It obviously had a long history over the last couple of decades in its development. Now it seems to be really ripe, lots of uh, investments going in. What are you excited about about this technology? Well, to be clear, it's been a work in progress for three decades, right? And um, Carrico and Weissman at the University of Pennsylvania deserve really the credit for that persistent work. They're, they figured out what needed to be done so it didn't evoke inflammation, preventing the mRNA from being able to be effective. So now, as you say, it opens up lots of possibilities. Our group at Script Research is particularly interested in of getting um, this for pan virus uh, vaccines. So we won't have to worry about each Greek letter as they come along and that we have a vaccine that works against all variants, all future variants in this family. That would be ideal, and I believe we'll get there. We could have gotten there potentially by now had we had a global consortium that was given the number one priority and the resources that were necessary. We have lots of different labs around the world that are working on this kind of in a redundant, isolated fashion. So as you say, though, other groups are working on it for heart disease, for all sorts of other conditions, including uh, suppressing the immune system and autoimmune diseases and in cancer. 
so we'll see. I mean, there already is a triple vaccine uh, working to get RSV, flu, and COVID all in one with mRNA. Lots of diverse potential, but obviously a lot of that uh, excitement has to be uh, validated in, in, in large clinical trials, and we haven't seen those yet. You know, just to follow up on that, the vaccine's efficacy, as you said, waned after a number of months. Are people working on just, I assume, on the modifications of the underlying structure of the vaccine so it will have longer effect? Uh, I assume that that's going on as well. Well, there are some things that can be done, like the adjuvants and the other ways, part of the package of the vaccine, but it's predominantly the result of the virus itself. The fact that the virus, when you are getting exposed to such a hyper-contagious virus like uh, Delta, it really was a combination of time plus Delta. Had we were still dealing with the ancestral strain, probably our, our vaccines would have held up much better. We didn't see hardly any breakthroughs until we had time plus Delta. So, you know, what we're dealing with is as the virus evolves, it gets even more challenging. It's this double hit of waning plus the evolving virus. But Dr. Topol, I think this is such an important point. I'm going to stay on it for just a moment, if you don't mind. Are, are we really saying to people that we're talking about a three-part series, like if you have to get hepatitis B or the DTAP series that you give your kids, you just know it's a three-part series standing up. And I think people kind of get one, two, got it six months later, get that third one, and then I might be good. Is that what you're saying and who do we need to have come out with this? Is it CDC that really needs to weigh in on this at this point? I do think that, you know, as I've posted, fully vaccinated should be three shots. Uh, three shots of all vaccines, except we don't have any data for J&J, &J, whether mm -hmm. a third shot will be useful. There aren't just aren't data. And for people who've had prior COVID, you know, even one shot may be enough. Certainly not three is necessary. But for the rest of the vaccines and the rest of people who are relying on vaccination for their uh, immunity, three shots is fully vaccinated. Already we have Israel that's recognized that for months, no less other countries that are coming to that conclusion. We knew when the COVID vaccines were developed that the two shots weren't going to be a lifetime vaccine. The only question that was right from the get-go was, would it be one year, two years? How much time could we eke out? Especially remember that these were done, the trials and the rollout with very short spacing, you sure. know, three weeks for Pfizer, four weeks for Moderna, because we were in a crisis. Yeah. And that's not ideal. I mean, everyone recognized that if they were spaced longer, this would be better. And we now have data to substantiate that. So the only thing that was a surprise was that we wound up at six months rather than, you know, one or two years. But this is a three-shot vaccine. And the question really is, is how durable that's, that package is going to be over the years ahead. You know, I want to go back to your statement about this is a worldwide pandemic and we need to, we're spaceship Earth, we're all on the, on the same plane, if you will, and thinking that we've gone through a number of variants. But what's out there waiting? I mean, I you know, don't want to be a, a downer here in terms of this conversation, but in a fairly short time, we've got to something called Omicron that could be dangerous, but it was in part because we really haven't done this effort of vaccinating the whole world. And it doesn't look like, if I look out the next 12 months, there's the political will or united effort, what, what do we have to worry about out there? And are there things that might uh, be things that we can't solve that arises in this era of pandemics? 
Well, you know, I think we do need to get cohesive in our uh, our efforts. Um, and, you know, I mentioned we could have had potentially a pan virus vaccine done already in clinical trials had we had this real coalescence of, of our work, but we don't. And in so many things that we haven't yet gotten our act together, you know, I mentioned the rapid test as another example. We just can do better. We've had two years to get... Uh, our act together, and we still don't do it. And it's frustrating, really, because by now, what we're seeing with Omicron is like deja vu. You know, remember back in February 2020, it's been found in this state. Oh, now it's found in that state. How many cases in this? We have the same thing. We know it's in every state now, Omicron. But where is our contact tracing? Where is our quarantine and isolation capabilities? Uh, No less our systematic sequencing for uh, breakthroughs, hospitalizations, people coming from international who are coming in with an infection. There's so many things we could do better. And you wonder, you know, for at least the United States, is this a bureaucratic issue of our country? You know, why can't we move in the right direction? Obviously, we have a plague of misinformation and disinformation that's holding us back. But there again, we haven't had an aggressive counter to take that on and call these bad actors and organizations, call them out and put them in the hall of shame for the country to see. We've been letting them just run amok and that's really diminished our chance of getting these very high vaccination rates that we need. Well, Dr. Topol, in in all of this, there's a a group of sufferers uh, right now, which is the folks who are really suffering with this uh, long COVID syndrome and suffering greatly. I think we I'll agree. And I know that at Scripps, you've got a new research initiative underway, uh, looking at whether wearable devices might make a contribution to uh, improving long-term symptom management, giving patients another tool to work with. Tell us a little bit about that. I think we all probably know somebody that are suffering from long COVID. Well, thanks for bringing this out, because I think long COVID is one important area that's missed in the pandemic, doesn't get nearly as much attention and it may be as many as 10% of people who get infections are suffering in some way or other for some duration, some now from the early times of the, the origin of the pandemic. And I've had colleagues still today that are suffering with uh, profound fatigue and uh, mm-hmm. lots of other symptoms, uh, of course, including difficulty breathing or exercising. So um, we are, Julia Moore Vogel in our group is heading up a trial to try to coach people, that is trying to uh, pulse oneself to to have um, uh, using up energy in a way that's more efficient. Uh, That's one tool that the various uh, patient groups have found to be useful, trying to get some valid data. We also know things like that are out there, like whether vaccination helps in people who have long COVID or to prevent long COVID or other things that are out there dangling. And we don't have any therapies yet. We don't have anything that can help squash this symptom complex. And of course, we know it's a mosaic of many different symptoms, you know, different in any given individual. So we have a lot of work to do for long COVID. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we're starting to see some trials, prospective work getting done, but we, we can't do enough because these people, too many of them are really uh, substantially uh, been affected adversely. 
That's great. You know, you talked about uh, sort of a little reservation about maybe traveling a, on a plane long distance. I'm just thinking about the day-to-day -day work, about the effectiveness of masks. Uh, obviously, people should get uh, vaccinated, but w what have we learned about uh, properly fitted mask indoors where somebody else may have uh, uh, have the virus, but uh, you don't? What, what's the what what precaution should be people taking, uh, and and how important is just masking and washing your hands? Well, the mask story is really important, and what we haven't done is get medical grade masks to everybody, which would really help a lot. Uh, obviously, you know we might not be able to get N95 masks, you know, for uh, use uh, throughout the pandemic to every American, but we certainly could do far better. We have never given out masks. In fact, I actually think that could help promote uh, some immunity by having, you know. Uh, USA flag on the mask and it's high grade, high quality. But as you say, it needs to be tight fitting. They have tremendous um, help and protection, no less uh, our other maneuvers like physical distancing, ventilation, air filtration, all these things that we don't necessarily do, but could do. And we may need to do more to help counter, not just the Delta surge that we're experiencing right now, who knows where that's gonna take us, but also, that when Omicron starts to get into the exponential phase, which obviously is still in the very early days now. So we have the tools to keep Omicron and any variant in check. We have them, but uh, masks are an important part. Again, we have the people out there who are anti-science, anti-mask, anti-vaccines, um, you know, trying to have mandates about, about not having masks, mandates about not having vaccine. This is incredible stuff. You can't yeah. just, you, you can't believe this is happening in, in a civilized country, you know? It's, it's amazing to me. And just today's December 6th, when will we have the definitive word on Omicron in terms of the work that uh, has to be done at the, uh, by, by the scientist? Well, I think the two biggest questions are not just if it's more uh, immune evasive, but how much more? Um, you know, beta was the variant with the most before. It's worse than beta. We just don't know how bad because when we see the lab tests, hopefully late this week or early next week, they'll be coming from multiple labs. We'll quantify and that'll give us a, a, an idea about whether our, how well our vaccines are going to hold up for neutralizing antibodies. And soon after that, we'll get the same kind of data for T cells. Um, the other big question is how contagious is it? How much more contagious is it than Delta? And we don't know that yet. That's gonna take epidemiologic studies. Uh, we're gonna know that in the weeks ahead as well. So we'll get a much better readout on, on the Omicron uh, in, you know, gradually over the next few weeks. But you know, it certainly doesn't look encouraging except for the fact that uh, the vaccines uh, are, are holding up reasonably well against severe illness. And that, that's a very important sign. We've been speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Follow his work at scripps.edu forward slash translation or follow him on Twitter at Eric Topol. Dr. Topol, we want to thank you again for your dedicated quest uh, to gather and share reliable data and insights on this pandemic and for joining us again on Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks so much for having me again, Margaret and Mark.
At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? With the release of its pediatric COVID-19 vaccine, Pfizer switched the buffer used in its formulation to increase the stability of the product to remain at refrigerator temperatures for longer. The Food and Drug Administration okayed the change, and the change is also being made to some doses for teens and adults. Social media posts, however, have misleadingly suggested that the ingredient swap is dangerous or was added to prevent heart attacks in children. There's no evidence to support that. The ingredient in question is tris or trimethamine, which is used as a buffer in the children's vaccine and will soon be available in some adult and teen formulations as well. A buffer keeps doses at the correct pH, neither too acidic or too basic. The original iteration of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine used phosphate-buffered saline, or PBS. Pfizer and the FDA have said the switch was made to improve the stability of its mRNA vaccine, which previously had to be kept ultra-cold for long-term storage and lasted a month in a refrigerator once thawed. The newer version can last in the fridge for up to 10 weeks. Tris has safely been used in other vaccines and other products. Less stringent cold chain requirements are especially helpful for the pediatric vaccine, which is being administered more in doctor's offices. As for social media post claims about Tris being dangerous or a drug for heart attacks, in large quantities, Tris can be used as a drug. But here, as in other vaccines and medicines, the compound is present in only a very small amount as an inactive ingredient to keep the vaccine stable. Dr. Kassar Talat, an infectious disease physician at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, told us the infinitesimal amount of tris in vaccines has absolutely nothing to do with the much larger volumes and higher concentrations of tris being given to people who are having heart attacks. The Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine is not known to increase the risk of a heart attack in any population. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. If music soothes the savage beast, the question they want to answer at the Sync Project is, how exactly? There are lots of anecdotal studies supporting music's ability to trigger memory or boost endurance or focus, but virtually nothing is known about how music truly impacts our physiological and neurological state. This is the question that intrigued scientist Keiki Kuranam, a systems biology PhD from Harvard, who wondered, how could music be scientifically harnessed as a powerful precision medicine tool? They formed the SYNC Project with a cross-section of neuroscientists, biologists, audio engineers, even some rock stars like Peter Gabriel, and started by using artificial intelligence systems to analyze existing playlists that purport to promote relaxation, induce sleep, enhance focus, or athletic performance. And once 
we have this set of songs that our machine learning algorithms predict to be effective for a specific activity, we can then run studies using these devices like your you know, heart rate monitors, your smartwatches, your activity trackers, and actually look at how effective indeed is that song for that purpose. Karanam and her colleagues note that most of us self-medicate with music already. So why not harness this ubiquitous tool that's available to all of us and develop strategies and systems that might replace pharmacological interventions with musical ones? The Sync Project is seeking a million volunteers to offer their music suggestions, as well as any information they can share on why these songs seem to work for them. So we're literally walking around with, you know, 40 million songs in our pocket every single day. So we saw a great opportunity on really being able to understand how music was affecting us to measure how different types of music affect both our psychological health as well as our physiology. Karanam and her team see vast potential for reducing reliance on drugs by crafting personalized music interventions in the management of a variety of complex conditions, such as pain management, PTSD, even Parkinson's disease. In Parkinson's disease, patients have trouble coordinating movement. So by playing them the right kind of music, it can be an external auditory support they have that's going to help them walk more smoothly. The SYNC project, combining computer technology and neuroscience, physiology and musicology to harness the healing powers inherent in music to help manage a variety of human ills. Now that is a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.